Well, they acknowledged that we existed. I'm not sure they always liked that we existed. So that's a slightly different story. I would say that for us, it was the world we knew and didn't realize how special it was. I did have a great experience at the church I grew up with where there was a large number of men that were involved with the young men in the church. And so the group of friends that I grew up with went on a lot of camping trips together, a lot of things with these men that weren't formal church events, they just took us with them. Yeah, what was special was their complete investment in multiple ways with us. Some of it was formal through programs like boys club, youth groups, that kind of thing. Probably the most significant part of the relationship was the informal part. They were so intentional about it and so consistent in it over a long period of time. <laughs> Think of one of the men, he had made a, a rowboat out of cedar strips, which takes a long time to build. That was one of the boats we sunk. So we took it down through some rapids sideways, hit a log, split it in half, sunk it, and <laughs> he just never said a thing about it, which still shocks me. But the fellowship for me is, is home. It's, it's primary. It's, uh, these are the people that raised me, that nurtured me, that gave me the opportunity. I'd like to think that, that the fellowship could be for others what it's been for me you know, as, a, as a venue for ministry, as a place for uh, growth and personal formation. Kent and I have been friends for a long, long time as teenagers can do. We can be critical of many things, critical of the fellowship, including that, and thinking of ways we felt it ought to go or ought to change. The most surprising thing for us is to look back and think back to a cabin in Kuanos, and um, one particular year we were in a cabin with Ken Bailey. That was way too soon to really know what was going on. Uh, but I did love the fellowship, and we'd see things, and uh, again, nothing terrible, but just, just how things were operating. Yeah, I had the feeling that, that someday we'd like to see some things change. And our most significant conversation back then was about the fact that the time was going to come when the fellowship would need to change, and if the fellowship stayed the same, uh, we'd have no way to blame but ourselves. So we would need to step up, need to lead, and be part of that transition. I think we needed to change to a point where we realized that we needed to join with one another, be less independent, be far more interdependent for the sake of the gospel. See passion for the mission of Jesus grow in people within the fellowship and then far beyond the fellowship. You can think about church or you can think about churches. And when churches come together and partner, some really powerful things are possible. So I think when we look in the fellowship for the future, we're looking at a place where we're in partnership together to see lives changed, people changed. And we mean that in the sense of people, the millions around us, literally, who don't know Christ, who need to. We mean that in the sense of the people who are already in our churches, which is 15 to 20,000 any given Sunday, who need to believe in themselves, believe that God has a plan for them, believe that God wants something great to happen in their life. So when young people emerge in our churches and they start recognizing their gifts and their calling, that they wouldn't feel like they have to go elsewhere, but they feel like there's opportunity here. And we can see God's kingdom come in this place and we can be a part of it.
the next era of the fellowship is to try and transform more and more into a discipleship organization. But the fellowship can't ever be the goal. We exist for the sake of the kingdom of God. We have a lot of agencies, a lot of groups that do significant, significant ministry. Instead of looking at every piece of that as a little tiny fish, we started to say, to whom much has been given, much will be required. And it's our time to actually step up and fulfill the mission. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited about it. Um, where the fellowship is going, where it can go, and we can actually change what we do, the way we think, and even the people that we are for the sake of the kingdom of God. satirist Malcolm Mugridge had a really interesting and event-filled life. It started with him being a communist and an atheist and then he kind of switched teams, became a soldier, a spy for the West, part of MI6, a columnist, an editor. He was the person who through his writing was credited with bringing Mother Teresa into worldwide fame because he was fascinated with her. He turned from atheism to become a Christian somewhere around the age of 63. And before he died, he wrote an unfinished autobiography, which he entitled Chronicles of Wasted Time. In it, he wrote these words. When I look back on my life nowadays, which I sometimes do, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now the most futile and absurd. In retrospect, all these exercises in self-gratification seem pure fantasy, what Pascal called licking the earth. Muggeridge, who died in 1990, was quoting Blaise Pascal, who had coined the phrase licking the earth way back in the 1600s. It was part of his collection of theological thoughts. And in a sense, 400 years had passed between them, and not much had changed. It was still a graphic description of the lives of many people in their culture, in their time. Unfortunately, it's obviously still true of our culture, of our country, of our region. Far worse, for me at least, too often, I get to the end of a day and it feels as if it's true of me as well. I finished the day and I know that I lived it far too small. Probably that's why when I see the passion of some of the early followers of Jesus, it calls me to something more. Something more than simply living a life that would be described as licking the earth. So I become captivated when the Apostle Paul talks about his call to ministry, when he starts to talk about what God has done in his life for him and has asked him to give his life too. And he writes about that in Colossians 1, 24 to 28. And he starts off and he says these words. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. He's rejoicing for suffering he's going through for the sake of the body of Christ, which he says is the church. I don't know if you can hear it when you read that, but there's tremendous passion driving him. Or the purpose that extends beyond Paul himself into the call to ministry that he's been given. I find it impossible to read those words and not ask if I'm equally passionate about things that matter to God. For starters, Paul was clearly passionate about the church of Jesus Christ, 
That's what he talks about in verse 24. He writes that he rejoices in filling up in his flesh what was lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So to be clear, when he's writing about something lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, he's not meaning that Jesus Christ on the cross was inadequate in any way or that his work was inadequate. He doesn't mean that we can add anything to it. What he means is that there's still work to be done. There's still a price to be paid to continue in the tasks that we're given. The suffering of Paul is enduring part of what Jesus came to do. He's continuing in that. And Paul says he actually rejoices in the opportunity. That's a bit odd for us. It's odd for me. I doubt most of us are thrilled about suffering. When we're going through difficult things, we endure it. We live through it. We may believe we have to face it, but I don't think we really rejoice in it. I know that I don't. Paul's rejoicing, however, is because he's passionate about the church. To Paul, the church is the living representation of Jesus Christ. It's his body. And anyone who serves the church serves Christ. Years ago, I was in the planning stages of a new church that was growing out of Newton Fellowship. It was a new church plant. And while I was doing that, I went to a conference where Bill Hybels, who was the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, was speaking. And Hybels, of course, was known uh, pretty much worldwide. And he was talking about the church and his passion for the church, how impossible it was to replace it, how passionate he was about the church. It was the best thing for him since the discovery of chocolate. Now, Hybels went on, he honored people involved in all kinds of other ministries, valuable, important things, but he'd go back and he'd say, but the church... The church is where the action is. The church is where lives are changed. The church is what drives him. And he turned to all of us that were in the audience and he asked, did we know what our passion is? What were we willing to give our lives to? And it was a pretty significant moment for me in my life. It was anything but simply licking the earth. So like many of you, I go to a conference, I leave it, I'm pretty pumped up, I'm excited about all kinds of things. A couple days later, it crashes. But this conference, that was one of those rare times where the passion never really left. And that's why this passage of Paul resonates so deeply in me. The church is God's plan for the extension of his kingdom, and he lets us be part of it. Now, before you start in on me on this stuff, because some of you are sitting there watching this video, look, I understand, the church is flawed. Actually, the people in the church are flawed. You're flawed. The leaders are flawed. I'm flawed. But before you get too excited, push pause for a second. Pretend you're me, the regional director for the fellowship. You just spent the last 10 years of your life doing crisis intervention in churches. So I go from church that's got a problem, from church that's got a problem, to another one. I am fully aware of the problems that exist in churches. Problems about money, about turf, about power, about every sin going. Churches are filled with problems and problem people. But my bias remains in favor of the church. Actually, my bias for the church is stronger than it's ever been. My belief is simply this. The church is God's plan. I know there's hundreds of other places and ways to serve meaningfully. But it's only the church that is the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. It's only the church that is still the bride of Christ. Jesus is still the head of the church, still its firm foundation, still the cornerstone. It's the church that calls me into ministry, Jesus saying, use your gifts through the church for my kingdom. 
When I was in my late teens, which is a blast from the past for some of you, there was a singer by the name of Noel Paul Stuckey. Maybe some of you remember, probably not. And he had a song that was called The Building Block, and it had a primary line. The building block that was rejected became the cornerstone of a whole new world. And it's a little passage, a song that came out of a passage in 1 Peter talking about the church. And I'd go hiking with my friends. I was at Central Baptist Church in Victoria at the time. Steve Sumby, who's now the pastor at Saanich Baptist, would go hiking with me. And we'd go walking in the mountains. We'd be on these paths. And we'd be singing this song over and over. Couldn't ever remember more than the first line. But we just sang it over and over and over. Steve, incidentally, is a terrible singer. I was pretty good. And I would do primarily the echo. And it would sound something like this. It would be the building block, the building block that was rejected became the cornerstone of a whole new world. So you can see I'm pretty good. Steve, not so much. But we would sing this song over and over and over. And we'd just go hiking up a mountain, singing this song. Hikers would go by us, looking at us like we'd lost our minds. But somewhere, you know, in singing terribly in the middle of mountains, it placed deeply in my soul that the idea that we are being built into a spiritual house through Jesus. It's his church. Christ is the cornerstone. It's his plan. And whether you sing it poorly or you sing it well, it remains true. And let me just say, I'm not trying to avoid reality when I say that. I know serving the church is costly. It's difficult. But Jesus created the church. He's its cornerstone. Paul knew the price. He was in prison in Rome proclaiming the good news of Jesus, even while he wrote this letter to the Colossians. And when we stand up for the church today, we can expect there to be a cost as well. The church doesn't have a lot of good press in society. It's not an in thing. Probably with our friends, as long as we're generic in our church talk, it's semi-acceptable, maybe tolerated. But if we talk about our church, our belief system, our Lord, or obedience to Christ as the head of the church, not too many people are accepting. There's a cost. There's also a relational cost. We know that churches are filled with really, really interesting people. They're often hard to get along with. And I could tell you about a lot of them, but you know some of your own. Regardless, if we are followers of Jesus, if we are disciples of Christ, then we love the church. In Fellowship Pacific, we have five values that drive most everything we do. At the top of the list is valuing and investing in the local church. We believe that's where everything happens, that it's God's plan for the proclamation of the gospel. But allow me to let you in on a little secret. I'm not a huge fan of big religion. And when I use that term, I mean denominations, associations of churches, even families of churches, which means pretty much I'm not the best guy ever for a job like I've got because I work in one. But here's another secret. I love my job because our top value, our driving force, is that we serve the local church. In fact, we just unrolled a new vision at Impact 2017 at the end of April. And it says this, that we exist to innovatively develop relationships and resources that propel every church in Fellowship Pacific to be accountable to their gospel mandate. Now that went by pretty quickly, so let me repeat it to innovatively develop relationships and resources that propel every church in Fellowship Pacific to be accountable to their gospel mandate. 
And one of the first targets that our board set growing out of that new vision statement is to plant 30% more local churches in the next five years. That will absolutely require God to lead it, God to empower it, God to resource it. In fact, the goals we have are so big that we are doomed to failure unless God chooses to do it, which is exactly the way it ought to be. Last year, um, on one occasion, I was interacting with someone who was attempting to make fun of me, and so their way of doing it was to impersonate me, and this was their impersonation. They said, this is what you do. You go around saying this, local church, local church, local church, local church. So in case you're wondering, mock me that way any time. I'm more than okay with that. In fact, I'm all in on that. Because like Paul, I believe that serving the true church is serving the true Jesus. The church is his representative in our world, and we have the amazing, mind-expanding privilege of being part of it. But to be a little bit more precise, it's not just the church in a generic way that Paul was passionate about. He cared specifically about the gospel being lived and spoken through the church. The words of Jim Collins in his book, Built to Last, they would be Apostle Paul's big, hairy, audacious goal. He cared about proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. His words in verses 25 to 27 of Colossians 1 went like this. He wrote, I have become its servant, that is the servant of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which works so powerfully in me. Paul is the servant of the church in a specific way. To reveal the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. There are plenty of people in Paul's time who thought it was a restricted message. It was for a very select few. There are people in the church then who believed that they were the elite, the chosen few. And Paul's answer was no, absolutely not. In fact, God has given me the unique job of revealing the mystery of the Gentiles, or of the gospel rather, to the non-Jewish world. This good news is not restricted. He was called to make known to the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Catch that phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ indwells his people, no matter what their background. Jesus is not merely a leader who walks in front of us. He's the Son of God who dwells within us. And that internal sense of Jesus gives us an absolute and certain hope for the future. Most of us that are here, that are watching this video, understand that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sin. It's something we talk about all the time. But that's where it also ends for many of us. It's where we stop the conversation. But Jesus died not just for us in eternity, but he died that he might live in us right now. It's his life in us that's the source of power, of change, of deliverance. It's his life in us that's the strength to resist temptation. It's his life in us 
that combats loneliness. It's his life in us that keeps us growing, being transformed into his image. It's not enough for any of us to know that he died for us to go to heaven. We need to know, to understand, and practice Christ living in us today. And it's at that exact point where we find the beauty of the church. It's not the building. It's not even the people, though we often say it is. It's what the indwelling Christ is doing in the people. It's how Christ is transforming them. It's the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory. So when we see a, a couple who's in our church who's broken and hurting, and one of them perhaps shattered their marriage vows, and there's no earthly way for them to rebuild trust and love, but they give their lives to Jesus. And years later, we get to see them walking, holding hands, obviously loving one another, demonstrating every day the power of the gospel. That's the beauty of the church. When you see a person struggling with substance abuse, but whose life has changed because he or she has been filled to the full measure of God, that's the beauty of the church. When you see a child rejected by his parents, feeling alone, feeling like nobody cares for them, but they give their life to Jesus and they begin to revel in the security of knowing God the Father who loved enough to send his own son, that's the beauty of the church. We don't love the church because everybody has it together. We love the church because we don't. We love the church because we have the same need for the same Savior in front of the same cross. The call for each of our churches, for each of us, remains the same, to extend that hope of Christ to everyone. So with Paul, we say we proclaim him. The message of hope centers in the person of Jesus. Our message is not a system. It's not a set of rules. It's not a group of regulations. It's not a denomination. It's not Fellowship Pacific. It's not even your church. Our message is the living and glorious person who's the fulfillment of the deepest hopes of mankind. That's why you see a refrain in this passage, the word everyone. Everyone. Paul's big, hairy, audacious goal was that everyone would be perfect in Christ. No exceptions, no exemptions, no exclusions. He wants to live out his passion for the church by struggling in Christ's energy to ensure nobody is left out. We have a really, really big job ahead of us in our region, here in BC and Yukon. And perhaps you didn't notice, but when I mentioned our new regional vision, it was to propel every church in Fellowship Pacific to be accountable to their gospel mandate. No exceptions, no exemptions, no exclusions every church accountable to their gospel mandate. And our board set targets that are quite specific and totally, completely out of reach. People coming to Christ in every church, every year. No exceptions, no exemptions, no exclusions. Second goal they set was that we would have 2,500 leaders being intentionally developed. That means about 10% of every church. No exceptions, no exemptions, no exclusions. Every church. They set a target that every one of our churches would have defined and engaged in a discipleship plan that's applicable to their community and their culture. 
every church. No exceptions, no exemptions, no exclusions. And that's a regional vision that drives right to the core of the mission of the local church. Our job is to reach the lost, to make disciples, to develop leaders, and to plant churches. We are completely aware that the fellowship can't do this. In fact, it's not even our job to do it. It will take God directing and God empowering. It will take local churches like yours living out your gospel mandate. It will take people choosing to serve in and love the church. But here's the thing. I love being part of Fellowship Pacific. And it has nothing to do with the organization. Nothing to do with the denomination. It has everything to do with the opportunity to serve alongside of people who love the local church. People like Paul, who rejoiced in suffering for the sake of Christ's body, which is the church. People who are unabashed to say that we proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone, everyone, with all wisdom, so that we might present everyone perfect in Christ. All we're asking you today is to continue to partner with us in fulfilling our part in that massive kingdom vision. All we're asking you today is to be sold out on the mission of your local church and to love it. We know there's an individual cost. Finances, time, emotions, energy, relationships. And we could go on and on and on on the various costs. So really, it gets down to this. All we're asking you today is to pay the price. That's it. Pay the price. If it's worth it, it's worth paying it. Joining together in the mystery of the gospel is something that is worth any cost, any price. The worst days of my life or when I come to the end of the day and I realize that all I did was engage in what Mugridge called the fantasy of self-gratification. Or as Pascal said it, licking the earth. I think we want more than that. And I believe it's time for some of the best of days. Days when we share with others the riches of Christ, the hope of glory. Thank you for letting others share in that journey with you.